As you take your seat, you can turn with me in your Bible to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs is the only book written in a large way for, for kids, for teenagers. Solomon writing to his uh, young children, his, his young adults. Uh, we're currently going through an expository series in the book of Proverbs in our college ministry. Uh, and uh, what I did was I took a, a, a list of all of the topics that the Proverbs covers. And I put them on one sheet of paper and handed it out to all of our college students, and I said, you all get five votes. And at the end, we'll tally up all of your votes, and any topics that get seven or more votes will add to our sermon series through the Proverbs, and we'll talk about what the Proverbs says about that given topic. I told them, here's, here's one you don't get to vote on, though, what the Proverbs says, or what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. Because here in Proverbs 1, verse 7, Solomon begins the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the first thing he has to say, really. Verses 1 through 6, if you read it, that's just kind of the introduction. That's just Solomon saying, hey, this is the book of Proverbs. And then the very first thing he says, and you can imagine Solomon wanting to, to speak to his kids about all of the things that are on his heart, you think about sexual immorality in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. You think about the things he's going to teach them about finances and relationships and friendship and all the, the myriad of topics that he's going to cover for his kids. He could have started anywhere he starts here. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sounds like I should have it, the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So, do I have it? Do you have it? What is it? Our elders are reading through a book right now by Michael Reeves, author of Delighting in the Trinity. I know a number of you have already read. Uh, his newest book, Rejoice and Tremble, covers this very topic. And as we've been reading through that, I've been uh, spurred on to just go through the whole Bible, look at every verse on every verse that talks about the fear of the Lord. Um, and so I wanted to bring that to you this morning. And of course, much of what I'll have to say does come from Michael Reeves and from his observations in Scripture, uh, because as Charles Spurgeon said, all originality and no plagiarism makes for adult preaching. <laughs> so what does it mean to fear the Lord? I'll give you a hint. After this sermon... I don't want you to fear the Lord. Instead, I want you to fear the Lord. My kids and I have a game that we play where we try to outdo one another in jumping out and scaring each other. You know, so the other day I'm coming in and as I open the door and step one foot inside the house, the curtains next to the door there, just explode, and my daughter comes out, Hah! and I promptly had a heart attack and fell over on the floor. Uh, no, I, she got me good. Um, but the other night, my son really won this game. Um, 
my wife and I had put the kids to bed and we're sitting as we typically do on the couch and we're talking and, um, and as I look over at my wife, she has this startled moment where something over to my right startles her, scares her. It was my son coming around the corner. And so she jumps, <gasps> right? Well, I at that very moment was looking over at her and scratching the back of my head like this, right? And it just so happened that as she jumped, it startled me. So I turned to look and my arm was in the way. So I saw nothing, right? And as I put my arm down, behold, my son is two inches from my face. (laughs) I practically jumped into my wife's lap as the protector that I am. And as I tucked my son into bed, he said, Dad, I got you good. I was like, yeah, buddy, now it's time for bed. And as I'm walking out, he said, and I think I win because I wasn't even trying. (laughs) As kids, you know, we like to to jump out and scare each other. Boo! Uh, I've actually found that boo is not quite as effective as any other random noise that you can come up with. Um, boo is kind of, it's, it's got like that cheesy factor, so you might startle them for a moment, but then they realize you, it's like, oh, you scared me, but you said boo, and that was just kind of dumb. So if instead, you just make any random noise that comes to mind in the moment, like something like it just adds some like cognitive dissonance there, and it just messes with their head just enough to like push the little, the startle a little further. Uh, We like to play games like that, right? Even as adults, adults like to watch scary movies, or if scary movies isn't your thing, maybe you like to ride roller coasters. As kids, we like to play games that scare us, but we're also afraid of monsters and dark closet doors being open. As adults, we like scary movies and roller coasters, but we're also genuinely afraid of someone breaking into our house or our kids being abducted or killed in a car accident. So is fear a good thing or is it a bad thing? It's almost like there's two different kinds of fear. Maybe a spectrum. We have the same question when we come to the Bible then, not just in life like that. Is fear a good thing or a bad thing? You've got verses like this, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, that sounds like the fear of the Lord is a good thing. I should probably have it. Proverbs 9.10 says the same thing. Psalm 86.11, the psalmist prays that he would fear God. Job 1.8, as Job is being described as a righteous man, says he feared the Lord. So it's a good thing. You find this not just in the Old Testament in passages like that in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, but also in the New Testament, Luke 1, 50, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Colossians 3, 22. So all over the place in Scripture, we see, okay, so fear is a good thing. But then you'll also find many verses that claim fear is a bad thing. So 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, none. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, so then we, we shouldn't fear God's punishment, right? So that's the, fear's not good. In fact, 
Do you know what the most frequently repeated command is in the Bible? Do not fear or fear not. So is fear a good thing or a bad thing? It's understandable why there's some confusion about the fear of the Lord, isn't it? As people who love doctrine, we recognize, okay, the fear of the Lord is important, but then we often put it on the shelf as like a dusty Old Testament theological concept of some kind, even though there's so many verses in the New Testament that commend the fear of the Lord. It's almost like we see it as like the theological equivalent of eating your vegetables. I know I'm supposed to fear the Lord, and and I, I do, I guess. Well, whatever it is, I'm sure I fear the Lord. To complicate matters, sometimes it seems like the fear of God and the love of God are two opposing theological camps. Have you noticed this? Right? Like, the love of God are those people who elevate loving God and the love of God over everything else, and they seem to abandon all the commands to holiness in the Bible. They water down their theology, and we think, I mean, don't go overboard with the love of God. But then the fear of God people are those who always point to God's punishment for sinners and stand outside of buildings with angry signs, and it seems they've lost sight of Jesus' call to love your neighbor and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So don't go overboard with the fear of God. Don't go overboard with the love of God. It's almost like, well, well what? Are these two opposing theological camps? Should it be that way? There has to be some theological Switzerland between the two where love of God and the fear of God are not at battle with one another, but rather we understand that fearing God and loving God are not opposite ends of the theological spectrum, but rather co-harmonious aspects of a right relationship with Him. We are both to love God and to fear Him. And the fear of the Lord is not the opposite of loving God. It's at the very core of loving God. Now, this just seems baffling to us. Like, the more you talk about it, the more you're like, right, you're just prolonging the confusion here. So, what exactly then is the fear of the Lord? Have you ever found yourself frustrated with this? Like, your kids ask, so we're supposed to fear the Lord? We're supposed to be scared of God? Well, kids, it's kind of like, and even as you're telling them, you're like, I'm not really sure. I hope I'm telling them the right thing. We've all heard people say, and we've probably told our kids, well, it's, it's like an awe. It's like reverence. Well, then why doesn't the Bible just translate it awe or reverence? Why does it say fear? I think that's helpful. Awe, reverence, that's helpful. It's just not complete. But more importantly, could we show someone in the Bible? Like, if you said, well, the fear of the Lord is like awe or reverence, and then they said, are you sure? Show me in the Bible. Could you? Because we can't just make things up because they sound good. I mean, awe and reverence, that sounds pretty good, but is it right? Because the Bible tells us not to fear God, and the Bible tells us to fear God. It sounds like there might be a wider range of meaning to this word fear. And so, one of the things that we're going to do this morning is really broaden our understanding of the meaning of this word fear. So when we think about Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
pretty sure we understand that verse pretty clearly. Okay, so the beginning of wisdom. If I'm going to have wisdom in my life, if I'm going to live the Christian life well, if I'm going to live in wisdom, the very first step of that, the most important thing is the fear of the Lord. And so we understand the verse really clearly except for this word fear. The fear of the Lord? Like, it, we would have been okay if he said, the, the beginning of wisdom is the love of the Lord. We'd be like, totally, got it, understood. But the fear of the Lord... We need to broaden our understanding of the word. Words, you know, have a range of meaning. We call it the semantic range, if you're a grammar nerd. Uh, Pulpit. Pretty narrow range of meaning, right? Like if I say pulpit, you pretty much know exactly what I'm talking about. Stage. A little bit of a broader range, a little broader range of meaning here, right? It could mean this physical thing that I'm standing on. The word stage could also mean to set something up. We're going to stage the proposal. Trunk. Huge range of meaning. How is it that the bottom part of a tree, the front part of an elephant, the back part of a car, and that box in my closet are all called a trunk? (laughs) What in the world is going on with trunk? you think about this, all of those things share something in common. They carry something. The trunk of a tree carries water. The trunk of an elephant carries water or food. Uh, The trunk of a car carries things. The trunk in your closet carries things. But broad range of meaning for the word trunk, huh? Can mean a lot of different things. Hey, could you grab that trunk? Right? Hopefully we're not in Africa pointing at an elephant. How about love? Love has a wide range of meaning. I love coffee. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I love my wife. Now, hopefully, there's some qualitative difference between how I love coffee and how I love my wife, right? Like, let's hope so. I love my kids. I love God, right? Those have to be somehow different than how I love coffee or pie. There's a range of meaning to this word love. Well, the word fear has a wide semantic range like this. It has a a wide range of meaning, especially in Scripture. And so what we're going to do this morning is, if you think about this, like grabbing your backpack, and we're just going to kind of go from verse to verse to verse, and we're not going to cover all of them, but I want to just kind of hit some of the ones that stood out to me as being most significant in helping us add meaning to our understanding of the fear of the Lord. And so it's like we're grabbing our backpack and we're just going to go to each verse. We're going to kind of load some more meaning into the backpack from that verse so that hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a full backpack and have a big understanding of the semantic range of this word fear. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. You're in Proverbs. That's going to be to the right a few books. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. So we know this is a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's read this. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And now listen to this, 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Hmm. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, if the fear of the Lord is Jesus' delight, if Jesus delights to fear the Lord, then it cannot be a gloomy, unhappy fear that causes him to want to run away from God the Father. If it is his delight, then the fear of the Lord ought also to be our delight. Nehemiah understood this. Turn over to Nehemiah 1 with me. As you turn there, you're tempted to go to the right because you're thinking, Nehemiah, isn't that? That's one of the prophets. Nope, Nehemiah is one of the history books, so go to the left. Nehemiah is always hard to find because of that. His name sounds like one of the prophetic books, but he's history, so that puts him before Psalms and Proverbs. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11 Nehemiah 1.11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. Well, this isn't just a Jesus thing then. Would have been easy to chalk it up to, well, Jesus is God and so he's kind of in a category of his own and so we probably can't have delight in the fear of the Lord in the same way. Well, Here's Nehemiah. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. He's saying to God, we delight to fear your name. So there is a kind of fear that is delightful. It is not repulsive. It doesn't drive us away from God or cause us to be scared he's going to hurt us, but instead it draws us towards him. It's delightful. We've seen the Bible uses the word fear in a variety of ways, telling us to fear in some verses and not to fear in others. We've seen in Isaiah 11 and Nehemiah 1 that there's this wide range of meaning to the word fear, wider than what we typically think of. So we're going to take our backpacks now from verse to verse, gathering more meaning for the fear of the Lord. There are good fears and there are bad fears. We're seeing that there are, there's a sinful fear and a right fear. And the Bible often uses the word fear in both ways. And sometimes even in the same passage. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Exodus 20, all the way back towards the beginning of your Bible. Exodus 20. We're going to look at verses 18, 19, and 20. This is on Mount Sinai. You're turning to Exodus 20. I'm giving you context. This is on Mount Sinai, right? They've They've received the Ten Commandments from the Lord, a passage we're all familiar with. And Exodus 20, look at verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Okay, so maybe they're getting it, right? It seems that they are fearing the Lord, right? But look what Moses says in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Whoa. Okay, so why not, Moses? Tell us why we should not fear. Continuing in verse 20. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. 
Now, did you hear Moses say what I just heard Moses say? Hey, I know you're afraid of God right now. Do not fear. He's here so that you'll fear him. You ever seen the dog when you like make a funny sound or something and the dog goes, huh? That's kind of this moment, right? And I know what you're thinking. Okay, I know what's going on here. I know where we're going, right? We just need to know what the Hebrew words are for fear here because there must be, if Moses says don't fear but instead fear, there must be two different Hebrew words, right? Nope. Nope. Moses uses the same word all three times when he says the people are afraid and then he says do not fear and then he says God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you all three times, same word for fear. Don't be afraid. God has come so that you will have fear of him. Notice the people are afraid of God's judgment, right? It says the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, Sorry, I lost my place in the Bible. I know that happens to you too. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak lest we die. The people are simply afraid of God because of his greatness and power and wrath against sin, but for lack of a better way to say it, they're only seeing half of who God is. Do not let God speak to us. That doesn't sound right. They just want Moses to tell them what to do. They don't want to hear from God because they're afraid of dying. And that lesson from here on Mount Sinai is something we're actually going to revisit in two weeks from a New Testament passage perspective. Uh, When you see God's rules and His judgment and stand in fear without seeing His glory and His grace, that really gets at the heart of what we're talking about this morning and what we're going to talk about from 2 Corinthians 3 in two weeks. This is a wrong fear because it's an incomplete fear that only sees, again, for lack of a better way to say it, only sees half of who God is. This kind of a fear of God can't lead to a proper life before Him because it's incomplete. Trying to live a life of obedience to God simply out of fear of punishment or fear that our life won't work out the way that we want it to doesn't work. That kind of fear is a terrible motivator. It always short circuits on us. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24 here. Now, in the context, we're just kind of parachuting in here. So remember in 1 Samuel 12 here, uh, the people have sinned and asking for a king, and they are pretty freaked out about their sin and God's judgment. So 1 Samuel 12, starting in verse 17, Samuel talking, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. So it's good for us to see that our sin before the Lord is massive, that it's great. It's, it's right for us to see that. It says, you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Verse 18, so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, 
and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So again, we're looking at this and we're like, okay, the people fear the Lord. This is good, right? We're supposed to fear the Lord, right? But let's see what kind of fear it is. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Like, don't you want to say, well, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray to him? Why is he my God? Pray, to your, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Again, here it is, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And then we see clearly that Samuel recognizes they have the wrong kind of the fear of the Lord here. Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Samuel says, do not be afraid because this is the wrong kind of fear. But notice he also doesn't tell them, don't be afraid, your sin's not that bad. Or don't be afraid, everything is, you know, your sin, you didn't really sin. Don't be afraid, you didn't sin. He actually says, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. <laughs> Thanks, Samuel, that's encouraging. Second half of verse 20 there. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Samuel wants them to see they have a sinful fear, which still needs to be developed into a healthy fear. So he begins to tell them, he, ha- he wants them to see those things are going to, that kind of fear is going to cause you to turn aside from the Lord to sinful things. That is not a right kind of fear. So, What does he do to correct, to inform their sinful fear of God? He begins to tell them of God's kindness. Look at verse 22. Why should they not be afraid? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Why should we fear Him? For consider what great things He has done for you. (laughs) Again, Samuel's pulling a Moses on the Israelites here. Hey, don't be afraid. Instead, fear the Lord. They're already afraid of God's judgment, and he says, don't be afraid, but fear the Lord Their fear is incomplete. It is only a fear of God's power, His wrath, His judgment. Your fear of God is limited to His power to judge. They need to complete their fear by, he says, considering what great things He has done for you. John Bunyan wrote a treatise on the fear of the Lord. In it, he says, it's the devil's work to promote a fear of God which makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from him. But the Spirit's work is exactly the opposite, to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins us to and draws us to God. So there is a wrong kind of fear, fear that drives us away from God, even, even get this, even as we're seeking to obey his law, We're driven away from him. Wrong fear drives us to live externally obedient while still on the inside, not drawing near to the Lord. Wrong fear of God simply drives us to legalism because it doesn't drive us to God. 
It drives us away from Him even as we're trying to obey the rules He's given us. In 1859, one writer said it this way, When a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief of His love revealed in the gospel, when he fears God because of His power and justice and not because of His goodness, when he regards God as more of an avenging judge than a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, he shows that this man is under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. That's 1859 for, 1859 speak for he's being legalistic. He's under a the prevalence of a legal spirit because he's driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's, God's wrath in the law, not drawn to them by the belief of his love revealed in the gospel. So that's gospel-centered theology for you in 1859. Fear the Lord simply because he's a righteous judge is actually a sinful fear and it drives you away from God even if you're seeking to obey him in the process. That was the fear of the Pharisees, wasn't it? The Pharisees would say, well, we've obeyed. We've done all these things. But Jesus would come back, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we need to have a, a right fear of God. So what does that look like? I have a confession to make. We moved to Arizona in September, almost six years ago, and we still have not been to the Grand Canyon. I really hope you can find it in your heart to forgive us. I have been to the Grand Canyon in my life, just for some odd reason, not in the years that we've lived in Arizona, like an hour and a half away from it. The amazing thing about the Grand Canyon is it is absolutely dangerous. We've all heard the stories of people who have fallen into it and died. You stand too near to it and you are in grave danger. But the fear that you have of the Grand Canyon isn't the kind of fear that makes you want to turn around and get in your car and drive away. It's a magnificent fear that makes you never want to leave. I just want to pull up a lawn chair and I'm going to need coffee because I'm staying here for good. It's the kind of fear that draws you in. I just want to be as close to this as possible, which is why there have to be signs and guardrails everywhere because people want to be as close to it as possible. God is absolutely dangerous. You stand near to Him and you are in grave danger. But the fear that we have of the Lord ought not to drive us away from Him. The fear of the Lord that we have ought to make us want to be closer to Him and never to leave. Sinful fear drives you away from God, even if externally you're trying to obey all the rules. Right fear draws you towards God. So what is this right fear then? What does it look like? How does the Bible talk about it? Turn with me to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, 
We're going to look at verses 38 through 40. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah says, In verse 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You hear how much language there is about God doing good to his people, and this is a picture of the new covenant, that he would put the fear of God in our hearts, and that the fear of God would cause us not to turn away from him because of the good that he does to us. This fear makes us turn towards God because it's a fear that's based not just on seeing His power and His magnificence and His judgment on sin, but also seeing His goodness and just the powerful reality of how these two could both be possible. Look over a page at Jeremiah 33 verse 9. And notice as I read verse 9, this is a fear because of all the good. Not a fear of punishment, but because of good. Jeremiah 33 verse 9. And this, this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Again, a fear because of God's goodness. This is a fear that just blows us away. It's an, an astonishment. In, in light of God's power and infinite holiness and my realization of my own broken sinfulness, the fact that He would turn and do good to me, I'm flabbergasted, and I'm drawn nearer to Him in this humble, reverent adoration and praise. I'm astonished at His goodness to me. Listen to Hosea 3.5. I, I won't have you turn there because nobody can ever find Hosea in the Bible. Hosea 3.5, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness. They will come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness. People felt this way all the time in the presence of God throughout the Bible. The, the most obvious one we think of is Isaiah. He sees the Lord, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Brokenness over his sin, but at the same time, here am I, send me. My sin, his power, how is this goodness to me possible? How is it possible. As we were talking about this as a family, my wife said, it's kind of like top fuel racing. And I like that. You know, top fuel is when they take a sports car or a fast car and instead of putting a car engine in it, they put a jet plane engine on it, which is 
maybe one of the smarter things that men have done. There's a reason they're not street legal. It's a car with a, basically a rocket engine on it, right? When you go to the race, and if you get there early, you can go down on the track and they'll start up the cars. And you have to wear earplugs and then earmuffs over them because it's so loud. And when this thing starts up, your whole body is shaking with the sound that's emanating off of this thing. And you're like, I think I forgot to put my earphones on because I can still hear it. You're just blown away by this power. And in a sense, you're almost trembling like it's a fearful thing to stand so close to a top fuel engine. And yet, it doesn't make you want to walk away. It just makes you want to get closer and look at it and just be in awe of it. Stand in stunned silence as you're just shaken by the power People respond to Jesus like this all the time. One example in Luke 7. Turn with me to Luke 7. In Luke chapter 7, we'll look at verses 14 through 16. Luke chapter 7. Then he came up. This is Jesus in Luke 7, starting in verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beer. This is not a reference to last week's or two weeks ago sermon on gray areas of the Christian life. Uh, this is beer, B-I-E-R, like the wooden thing that they carry a, a casket on. He came up and touched the beer, and the, the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And then get this verse. And the dead man sat up. And began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. You see, it was not a fear that made them all turn around and tuck their tails and run away. This was a fear that made them absolutely astonished by who God is. It's an awe, a profound bewilderment and wonder, a remarkably blown away admiration, an astonished reverence. It's, it's common for Christians to use words like this, awe and respect and reverence as synonyms for the fear of God. That's not wrong. It's, it's helpful to think about related words. And certainly those are a part of the fear of the Lord. It's just the backpack's not full if that's all you got in there. Michael Reeves, the author of Rejoice and Tremble, says those words are actually, actually fall quite short of capturing the intense and happy fullness of what Scripture means when it speaks of the fear of God. So bring your backpacks with me over to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So notice the, the first and last line there. How abundant is your goodness in the sight of the children of mankind? How abundant is it? Well, 
You've stored it up for those who fear you and worked it for those who take refuge in you. So two things to note here. First, fearing God rightly means receiving His goodness. Second, to fear the Lord in this verse is synonymous with taking refuge in Him. You know when you take your young kids to someone's house, over to a friend's house maybe, and they're very friendly, but very huge dog is like looking eye to eye with your small child. One of the kids says, I forgot my snack in the car, I'm going to run out and grab it. And as the kid begins to bounce away, the dog takes off like, oh, we want to play. And there's kind of this low growl as the dog is getting excited, right? Friendliest dog on the planet, the child is absolutely terrified. The temptation is run faster. But what do you say to your kid? Oh, wait, wait, don't run. Just walk alongside him out to the gate. Isn't that a great picture? Don't fear God in such a way that you run away from him. Instead, walk alongside him knowing that you're safe. Michael Reeves says it good in, uh, in Rejoice and Tremble. It says, true fear of God is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. The fear that Christ himself has and shares with us is the opposite of being afraid of God. Godly fear casts out being afraid. Overwhelmed by his goodness and majesty and holiness and grace and righteousness, by all that God is, the faithful tremble. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love that we have towards God, which is a sort of fear of God. Seen clearly then, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. And of course, Spurgeon always says it best, you can bet on that. He says, believers worship and adore the living God with a joyful, tender fear, which both lays us low and lifts us very high. For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's golden throne than when our spirit gives itself up to worship him whom it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight. See, this is where we begin to see as we're putting all of these pieces together that having the right kind of fear of the Lord is at the very core of the Christian life. This is what it means to see ourselves rightly before God as we see God rightly and tremble at His greatness with a joy-filled wonder and amazement at His majestic beauty, His incredible power, His inexplicable grace and mercy towards us that we can't seem to make these things match. How is it that He hates sin and is so powerful, and yet he loves me, and I get to draw near to him. I'm flabbergasted. I don't even know what to say about it. This is very much like, we're going back to Reeves again. I'm going to quote Reeves to quote Lewis to quote the kids about Aslan. You with me? He says, The first time Mr. Beaver mentions Aslan's name in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and here's from Lewis, Beaver says, they say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And this is the, the first time the name of Aslan is mentioned in the book. 
And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't fully understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it for the rest of your life and always wish you could get back into that dream again. And it was like that now at the first mention of the name of Aslan. Each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the first day of the holidays or the beginning of summer. So... And use all of these pictures to try to bring meaning to this idea of the fear of the Lord. So what is right fear? It is a fear which, the, the fear which pleases God is not a groveling or shrinking fear because he's not a tyrant. It's an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore throws ourselves at him, leans on him in staggered praise and faith. And this is all deeply practical for our lives this week because today we live in a culture of fear. I mean, fear is everywhere you turn, and fear is a powerful motivator. Politicians are trying to get you to vote for them by telling you all of the things you should be afraid of if their opponent gets elected. FOMO is a thing. Fear of missing out is a dominant controlling influence in people's lives. I literally got this text on Friday morning at 9.07, two days ago. Don't be the last person without an air fryer. (laughs) The Kasori XL is 33% off on Amazon. Click here to get cooking. Oh no! Am I really going to be the last person without one? Or, and I I just got another one this morning. Here, I'll pull it up for you right now. It's your last chance to get a Funko Disney Year of the Mouse Mickey Mouse pin set. 40% off on Amazon. Click here to get yours. It's funny, but you notice how even subtly, subtly, they're trying to use fear to motivate. Don't be the last person. Oh man, that would be embarrassing. Aren't you afraid of what all your friends would think of you if they knew you didn't have an air fryer like everyone else does? I'm going to say humanity did fine without air fryers until 2010. We're probably going to be all right. But if you got an air fryer, you know, see Romans 14, no judgment. It's funny, but we are also genuinely afraid of things. I mean, think about this. We're afraid of burglars and kidnappers. We're afraid of sexual abuse. We're afraid of emotional manipulation. We're afraid of germs and failing. Man, we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of having the wrong diet and a thousand other things. And so we've created speed limits and special locks, apps and airbags and antibiotics. We've removed pesticides from our foods. We've removed lead paints from our homes. 
We buy bigger guns. We buy bigger crash test rated cars. We can monitor our homes with security cameras. We can pinpoint the location of our loved ones with location sharing on our iPhone. But even though we are the safest generation in the history of mankind, we are more fearful and panicky than ever before. We have helicopter parents who can't let their kids grow up and young people who can't even cope with someone having a different viewpoint, so we call it hate speech and we take them to court. We're afraid of a lot. There are things that you are afraid of. We're also deeply anxious. And the difference between fear and anxiety, fear has a direct object. I am afraid of this. There's a thing you can point at when you're afraid. I'm afraid of that happening. Anxiety is more of like a nebulous thing. It's kind of like this dangly, it's, 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 it's more cloudy. It's a dangling fear that kind of latches on to all sorts of things as you walk through your week. So why are we so anxious and fearful and troubled? We are afraid of everything because we've lost our fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a balancing force that tames our other fears. It's a, it's a force that's our ally because it's a powerful ally. Don't underestimate the power of this force. The fear of the Lord is a balancing force that tames our other fears. Jesus taught this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul, both body and soul in hell. So what did Jesus say? If you're, what's the solution for the fear of people who are trying to kill you? a right fear of the Lord. And I'm pretty sure if you've got people hunting you, chasing you, trying to kill you, pretty much all of our other fears fall under that in fearfulness, right? John Flavel said, if men would but dig to the root of their fears, they would find unbelief there. This is why our fears so often come true. Our fears become a self-fulfilling prophecy because they're directly connected to our, an area of our lives in which we're not trusting God. We're not seeing Him rightly, and so we are fearfully trying to manage things on our own apart from the Lord's wisdom because we're trying to protect ourselves from this fear coming true. So we try to take control because we're afraid, and because we're taking control, instead of fearing the Lord and trusting Him, that very area of our lives is affected by poor decision-making, unbelief, and disobedience. And when you apply unbelief, poor decision-making, and disobedience to any area of your life, what happens? Bad things. And so usually, our fears actually become self-fulfilling prophecies. We've actually seen this come true countless times. You've seen this in friends and family. The person who's afraid they'll never get married and so they obsess about what members of the opposite sex think about them so much that their appearance in public, uh, just, they just become so deeply selfish. They become socially awkward and as a result, their selfishness and social awkwardness ensure that they never end up getting married. Their fears have become self-fulfilling prophecies because 
They went unchecked by the fear of the Lord. Or it can happen in a thousand ways. They're so afraid that they'll be alone and they want to get married so badly they marry someone who's not walking with God and it ruins their marriage and they find themselves completely alone even within their own marriage. Or the people who are afraid, so afraid of what will happen to their kids if they allow them too much exposure to the world that they shield them from the world, trying to take control of all of life for their kids and hide them from all of the world's influences and what happens when their kids turn 18 and move out. They haven't been prepared for how to respond to the world's influences. And so they run headlong into sin and away from the Lord. Our fears will become self-fulfilling prophecies if we allow them to go unchecked by the fear of the Lord. And this isn't just true in these examples, but in every area of your life where you allow fear to take control. So finally, how then do we grow in the fear of the Lord? And recognize the danger as soon as we say that. How do we grow in the fear of the Lord? As soon as we start using how-to language, we shift towards ourselves and what we do. And that in and of itself is a problem. We, we look at our performance and we stop looking at Him. We can start to look at our external performance and think that our outward display of doing this and this and this equals the fear of the Lord when in fact we're easily just faking it and missing the point altogether. When we rightly understand the fear of the Lord, we realize that it's not something that you do, but something which does things to you and causes you to do things. The fear of God is not something that can be acquired through behavior modification or better habits. However, godly habits put you in the place to be influenced by the fear of the Lord. They put you in the path of grace to receive the inflow of the gospel which will create in us a right fear of God. Again, Reeves says it this way, As such, it is not the mere sum of certain behaviors which we call the fear of the Lord or something that we can acquire with simple self-effort. If it were, it would be an entirely superficial and infinitely less precious matter. Instead of being a consequence of any particular practices, the fear of God is a matter of deep orientation of a renewed heart, something that then causes true Christian behavior. See, this is something that happens to us as we behold who God is, we grow in the fear of the Lord. And Understand, the ways to behold who God is is to have Bible intake, to read your Bible, study your Bible, memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible, hear sermons from the Bible, to fellowship with people, to take communion, to give together, to see baptism together, to, to challenge and encourage one another, to live in the one and others of Scripture together, to pray. So Bible intake, fellowship, prayer. All of these things could go into those three categories, all of the spiritual disciplines. But the thing they have in common is they're the things that put us in the path of God's grace to see Him for who He is, to be flabbergasted by His goodness to us and rightly fear the Lord. And it's in the gospel, at the cross, that we see both the massively pure holiness and justice of God and how terrible our sin really is. 
We also see how marvelously gracious and forgiving He is, what great good He has done for us, the way He poured out love and mercy and forgiveness, even as He poured out wrath and justice. Having turned from our sin and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now stand in awe of Him and we're amazed at His danger and our safety as we're so close to Him. Picture yourself climbing in the mountains. You're climbing on these massive rock faces high above, and you see a storm coming. It's going to be a massive storm, and you realize that you are unbelievably vulnerable on these mountain precipices. This massive mountain is a danger to you. The cliff that you're on is a danger to you. The rocks below are a danger to you. The rain and the wind, the lightning and the thunder, they're grave danger to you, and you are terrifyingly scrambling for your life, figuring out what to do. You are afraid. Afraid in such a way that you find yourself wishing that you were down off of this cursed mountain, away from this storm, as far as I could get from it. Suddenly, you pull yourself up over the next rock and you find a tiny little cave in the side of the mountain, a little hollow there, just big enough for you. You climb in to hide out the storm. And as you spin quickly to get into it, putting your back against the inner wall of this tiny little cove and facing out into the storm, you suddenly exhale and realize you are completely safe. And as this whirlwind of terror slams into the mountain, the overwhelming fear you have is altered. It's changed. It's switched to a sense of wonder at the power of everything that you're seeing. It's a different kind of fear. There is now nowhere you would rather be than right here at the center of all of this power on display. You can't wait to tell everyone about what you saw. You are never going to forget this moment. You will live the rest of your life looking back on that moment when in the side of this dangerous cliff, you looked out at this wildly dangerous storm. And it's that little precipice in the side of the cliff that kept you safe, that transformed your fear from a fear that drove you away to a fear that wants you to be near. And in the same way, when the holiness and justice and power and wrath and judgment of God break over the mountain of your life like a whirlwind of terror, you have to be totally safe in the gospel. You have to see that you are kept perfectly protected, not just from Him, but by Him. All of that horrible danger is then transposed into this music of majesty and you fear the Lord in a bewildered sense of wonder that you could be so safe when you are so near. And that little hollow where you're kept safe on the side of the mountain, that's the gospel. That's the cross. 
Jesus died to provide a place where you could be kept safe from the power and the wrath of God while simultaneously being brought as near as possible to his power. Jesus died for us to provide a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear and trembling that is not a cowering fear, but an astonished, devoted fear. Not a fear that makes us wish we were far away, a fear that makes us stand in awe of the fact that we could be so close, and a fear that causes us to realize there's nowhere we would rather be. That's why when we go to the Bible, when we come to church on a Sunday morning, when we fellowship with one another, when we approach the Lord in prayer, it's not simply for more rules, more practical tips about how to go out and live a better life. We don't come to the Bible for just rules. We go to passages of Scripture to be floored by His amazing, glorious grace, terrified by His majesty, in awe of His power, astonished that we could be so close to this God that we love and fear. We go to the Bible then to be drawn near to God, and as our hearts are transformed from the inside out, We're amazed by who He is, and it absolutely changes the way that we live so that our actions are not just mere behavior modification because we found some rules in the Bible and we decided to keep them, but we've been changed as a person, spiritually altered to be a different kind of person who truly fears the Lord. Father, that's our prayer to you this morning. As we come to your word day in and day out, as we come to church Sunday after Sunday, as we fellowship with one another in discipleship groups, small groups, Bible studies, as we come to you in prayer, as we pray together, as we partake in the Lord's table, as we see baptism happening, In all of our spiritual disciplines, Lord, grow us in the fear of the Lord. Help us, Lord, not only to fear you for judgment and wrath and power, but to stand in awe, a full-orbed fear of the Lord, astonished that you love us, astonished by your goodness to us, And as you do that in our lives, Lord, we know that we will be transformed. Beholding your glory, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another. And that's our prayer. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.